Log Syntax. Episode 3, Part 2. If only they could speak. Yeah, we don't have anything, any takeaways, If but if we had one takeaway, it would be don't let your monkey smoke weed, please. No, and then, and no, no animals should be made to smoke nothing. Um, mm. On the other hand, if you have a sore throat, <laughs> can recommend Lemsip. Um, oh, we are sponsored by Lemsip. Uh, we are in the pocket of Big Lemsip. Big lemon. Let's not let's let's not go down that path. Let me. Did I tell you I I researched I researched some Lemsip ads. Oh, did you? And they all involve claymation lemons. Why? I don't know because it's Lemsip. But why, why are they not real? Why it? are they not real lemons? Well, because a claymation lemon can like walk around and like talk. <sighs> But why do you need a lemon to walk around and talk? It's lemony. That's all it needs to do. Well, you gotta sell your you gotta sell your shit somehow. Okay. I've never seen a claymation lemon. Um (laughs) I'm not I'm not disputing they exist. Would you let it smoke weed if it asked you for weed in in Yes, because it's already a plant. Oh, yeah. And it just wants to be a relaxing lemon. The ethics are still evolving. Log syntax is brought to you by Lemsip. If you've got the flu, do what any sensible lemon does. Go to bed and take Lemsip. With paracetamol and a decongestant in a hot, soothing liquid, you'll soon feel better. For relief of your flu symptoms, take Lemsip. Rogue syntax. Rogue syntax. Rogue syntax. Rogue syntax. Hello, this is Rogue Syntax, episode three, part two. It was written by me, and it's read by me and Danny Zavella. Script consulting was done by Rika Bundgaard-Nielsen, and music was once again generously provided by Vera de Valle. Titles and ephemera by... Oh, my name is Leko Martins. Hi, my name is Sabine Gottfried. This audio documentary is presented by 1646 and Liquid Architecture with support from the Australia Council for the Arts. Chapter 1. Nim Chomsky, Noam Chomsky and Herbert S. Terrace. This is episode 3, part 2 in which we're considering the history of animal experiments, particularly those with chimpanzees, on the battleground of language. In part one, we investigated the background to animal language experiments in general, and in particular with chimps, our nearest living relative. We explored methods used to train chimps to utter words, often involving manual shaping of the lips, and how, when these failed, perhaps due to chimps' differing anatomy and perhaps due to their ability, 
experimenters moved on to trying to teach chimps sign language. Yeah. We also talked about the animals at the centre of these experiments over the last 115 years, introducing the various animals used by scientists and linguists to explore animals' faculty for language. Chimpanzees Johnny, Gua, Vicky, Washo and Lucy, and a horse from 1907 named Clever Hans, who in many ways started all of this research. In fact, Clever Hans is so important that he had a phenomenon in comparative psychology named after him. At first, it was thought that Hans could, in fact, count and understand various words and concepts, until it was discovered that his trainers were inadvertently cueing him towards the answers they sought. This inadvertent signalling, which prompts desired behaviour in the animal subject, has been a major part of the debates around animals and language and is named after the horse, the Clever Hans effect. Nim and Noam. So in the last episode, and forgive us, we are going to say in the last episode a lot, we introduced you to the animal language debate which started burgeoning in the 1950s but really took off in the 1970s and some of its biggest players, in particular B.F. Skinner, the daddy of behaviorism, his critic Noam Chomsky, and Skinner's acolyte, the psychologist Herbert S. Terrace, who led a remarkable experiment into whether a chimpanzee could be taught to speak language. We also introduced you to the legendary primate researcher, Roger Foots, who was involved with the chimpanzee Washoe, one of the last wild-caught chimpanzees used in language research. Foots has written extensively about chimpanzee language experiments in the context of debates in science and linguistics. Foots wrote, since 98.7% of the DNA in humans and chimps is identical, some scientists, but not Noam Chomsky, believed that a chimp raised in a human family and using American Sign Language, or ASL, would shed light on the way language is acquired and used by humans. Project NIM, headed by behavioural psychologist Herbert Terrace at Columbia University, was conceived in the early 1970s as a challenge to Chomsky's thesis that only humans have language. So maybe it's worth us revisiting this Terrace quote from part one. If I could teach Nim to produce sentences in sign language, I would have refuted Chomsky's view that only humans could learn language. Specifically, I would have shown that the ability to create new meanings by combining words, an ability that Chomsky claimed was the defining feature of language, could be found in other species. It seems here that Terrace was not exactly unbiased. He clearly wanted a specific outcome. And he was to become extremely influential on the way these experiments would be conducted in the future. If you've seen the documentary Project NIM, you'll know the outline of Nim's story, which is essentially the same as Lucy's. A chimp that outgrows the ability of their humans to handle them. 
But while Project NIM is a pretty accurate representation of events, there's a lot left out of the film, particularly the aims of the experiment and its role in litigating a particular side of the debate between Skinner and Chomsky. The experiment with NIM was an attempt to further the experiment with Washoe, an earlier sign language using chimp. Terrace and his colleagues wanted to use more thorough experimental techniques and experimental analysis of behavior, which is a discipline that comes out of Skinner's operant conditioning. They wanted to do this so that the language abilities of the apes could be further proven and accepted. So in order to do this, Terrace needed a human mother who would care for an infant chimpanzee. Nim was acquired in 1973 from the sadist Dr. Lemon. See episode one. By Stephanie Lafarge, a former student of Terrace's. Nim, the chimpanzee, was two weeks old mm. when he was taken from his mother, who had already had six other babies taken from her. Nim's mother was shot with a tranquilizer dart and the baby was snatched away. I don't want to do this whole bit. Do you want to just do this whole paragraph? You're just, you're just, it's just very upsetting. Yeah, it is very upsetting. Am I trying to, I'm just trying, okay, I'm I don't happy like. To, I'm happy to take the heavy load. I'm happy to take the emotional load. Well, I appreciate that. Okay, it's upsetting so, to abuse the chimps, don't you think? It's fucked yeah, up. it's fucked up. Stephanie raised Nim alongside her other children and she even breastfed him. So let's let James Marshall, who was the director of the Project Nim movie, take this one. Stephanie did the best she could, and people often respond with, how could she give Nim marijuana when he was a kid? Well, it's no stranger than sticking him in clothes or a classroom. The film, Project Nim here, offers you a snapshot of New York in the 70s and the values of that time. So let's just say the Lafarge household was long on love and short on discipline. Yeah. An attempt to avoid the clever hands effect. So at the age of two, Nim was moved from Lafarge's Manhattan Brownstone to a mansion on the Columbia University campus. By his third birthday, Nim had learned to produce 125 signs, but, and here is Terrace again, what distinguished Project Nim from Project Washoe was not just the recording of the words, but a corpus of Nim's combinations, which eventually included more than 20,000 combinations of two or more signs. Many of Nim's combinations appeared to have been generated according to simple grammatical rules, such as more plus X, transitive verb plus me, or Nim. For example, there are 375 instances of play me, and only 81 instances of me play. That type of contrast provided the strongest evidence of an ape's ability to create sentences. It would seem that Terrace's findings were consistent with Skinner's theory over Chomsky's. There was nothing specifically human about language, and particularly about grammar. Terrace set about reporting his findings alongside a series of photos showing Nim in the process of signing in ASL. 
Here is Terrace again on submitting his research to Science Magazine. For example, in the photos, Nim is signing Hug Cat in order to play with a cat. That and other combinations that Nim produced were the basis of the article I submitted to Science, in which I claimed that a chimpanzee could create a sentence. As evidence, I included the above photos, but a shocking discovery led me to withdraw the paper while it was under review. What made me change my mind was a videotape of Nim signing with one of his teachers, a tape I had previously watched many times. I vividly remember the shock I experienced when I saw Nim's teacher prompt him to sign, less than a fraction of a second before he signed. Why hadn't I previously seen or noticed his teacher's prompts? The reason was simple. Each time I watched a videotape of Nim signing, I thought I was watching a chimpanzee making history by conversing with a human. It was as if I was observing Nim through a telephoto lens, one that allowed me to zoom in on his signs at the expense of any context. On this occasion, though, my gaze shifted from a telephoto to a wide-angle view that allowed me to see the relation between the teacher's and Nim's signs. In this and in hundreds of other instances, Nim's teachers anticipated what he might sign and made those signs a fraction of a second before he did. I documented those interactions and others I found in films of a chimpanzee and their trainers, e.g. Washo and her trainer Beatrice Gardner, and submitted a new article to science. The article was called, Can a Chimpanzee Create a Sentence? And Terrace's answer was a resounding no. He claimed then, and still does, that Project NIM and all the previously referred to chimp language acquisition experiments were simply examples of the clever Hans effect in action. In other words, Terrace was claiming that Nim Chimpsky was reading human reactions and expectations and giving the desired answers to obtain rewards, not speaking language. Noam Chomsky. And it turned out that they had been completely deluding themselves in ways that are clever Hans-style ways. The experimenters who were very skilled and practiced either were sig subtly signaling Nim in ways that Nim picked up and responded, or else they were taking st strings of meaningless symbols and picking things out which seemed to make sense. Can animals learn language? Terrace later expanded his refutation of his earlier research. He went on to claim not only that Nim hadn't learned to use language, but that animals couldn't learn language, use grammar, or even words. Terrace is now so convinced that language acquisition is only a human skill that his latest book is even called Why Chimpanzees Can't Learn Language and Only Humans Can. It was published by Columbia University in 2019. Terrace claims that not only can no animal other than humans learn basic grammars, Chomsky is defining feature of language, but they can only use words in an imperative sense as requests or orders, not 
conversationally. And so Terrace questions both whether simple imperatives are actual words and whether animals can even learn referential sounds, signs or symbols. None of the sequences that chimpanzees learned to produce required a linguistic explanation. In each instance, chimpanzees learned to use signs or symbols as imperative commands, that is, as a means of obtaining rewards they could not otherwise obtain. Although human language has imperatives, their relative frequency is minuscule. The overwhelming majority of words are declarative and their sole function is to share information. Unlike children, who learn that words function as names that can be used to refer to particular objects and events, chimpanzees could only learn the imperative function of signs and visual symbols, a means to obtain a particular reward. Declaration and imperatives. Okay. So a couple of things here. Firstly, it's not clear whether all of the instances of animal communication previously reported were prompted and therefore examples of the clever Hans effect. Terrace himself could only identify 40% of documented signs as being clearly prompted, according to William A. Hillix. Also, that they were all imperatives is itself not clear. Imperatives are commands and declaratives are statements or observations. So Washoe spontaneously signing Waterbird seems to be declarative. He did that when he saw a swan. Terrace's redefinition of words here to exclude imperatives seems to be shifting the goalposts or changing the rules. Though exclusive use of imperatives would demonstrate a very different or restricted type of language use from our own, let's not forget that Terrace, as a lapsed behaviorist, should be aware of the role of rewards in Skinner's proposed mechanism for learning language, that is, operant conditioning. Presumably, rewards also play a role in all language learning, even in humans, though rewards here might be less direct including parental attention, approval, and praise being strong motivators. One might also see the question of imperatives and say, So what? Imperatives and rewards don't exclude these utterances from being language. However, Terrace has also trained monkeys and pigeons to use long sequences of symbols in order to get rewards. Such a system might be considered to be like a phone number, which is clearly not language. But if you think about it, a phone number is similar to a name in that it designates who a message is intended for. Or you could think of it like a password. Is a password language? Again, maybe yes or maybe no. If you listen to Nim Chimsky's longest quotation, Give orange me, give eat orange me, eat orange, give me, eat orange, give me you. Uh, it's <laughs> clearly possible that it's beautiful. Um, 
It's clearly possible that Nim Chimsky, having learned the signs uh, and that they could unlock rewards, simply shuffled them around until he found the right combination to get what he wanted. As James Marsh, director of the Project Nim film, puts it, they're chimpanzees. They have a very rich communicative life that's beyond the limited amount of signs we gave Nim to use. And he's in a position of powerlessness, so he's bound to use those signs to advance his own particular objectives, which are often very, very immediate and very, very primitive, shall we say, like eating and shagging. And I would add dominant struggles, because one of the defining features of chimp society is the frequent violent assertion of one's status in the hierarchy. What happened to Nim Shimsky? So as Nim reached puberty, he, like Lucy, would become violent with his handlers. And as the project ended, Terrace returned Nim to Oklahoma and to Dr. Lemon's care. Nim had served his purpose and was no longer needed. At the IPS in Oklahoma, Nim met Bob Ingersoll, who said, Even before Nim came back to us, I was kind of suspicious of the whole language deal, he says. I was a lot more interested in chimpanzees' cognitive behavior in the wild. I also saw that in order to teach sign language to chimps, you had to take them away from chimps. That was difficult for me to justify. Their own culture is rich and full. All the kinds of things we're looking to give them, they already have. I used sign language with chimps, and I don't know how I feel about it. I feel kind of guilty about it, actually. Mm. Nim and Ingersoll were such buds that they used to smoke pot together. Again, I have taken a little bit of heat for that, he says, especially from my mum. But I didn't introduce him to it. Nim appeared as a pot-smoking chimp in High Times magazine in 1975, years before Ingersoll met him. Man, don't give the monkeys weed. (sighs) So sad. (laughs) I mean, conceptually, it's sad, but you know, I mean, if you if you if you make a joke about a pot smoking monkey, that's funny. But giving a really giving a monkey pot, it's not good. Yeah. Well, I mean. To even today, they are testing vapes and various heating devices, you know, with by pumping smoke into rats' faces <sighs> and then killing them so they can cut open their little lungs and see what it did to them. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like it's in some ways, is it worse that Nim got acculturated to smoke in the hooch or is it worse that, all those animals don't even get to have a say. Anyway, this yeah. is really cheerful I mean, stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, it's still the morning for me, so I don't know. I mean, I'm ready. For, <laughs> I'm ready to. Okay, so let me just finish out that. Yes, sentence. yes, yes. Okay, that that section. He signed Stone Smoke now. Ingersoll recalls, and we were actually pretty astounded. When we took Nim out on walks, we didn't want to disinclude him from anything. 
It wasn't like we were blowing shotguns on him. If he asked for it, we let him smoke it. Yeah, you shouldn't let... Don't let the monkeys smoke No, we don't endorse that. Um, Let me do this. So when the Primate Studies Institute was closed in 1982 and Nim and all the other chimps were sold off to Lemsip, again, not the delicious lemony drink, your number one choice for cold and flu relief, and claymation lemons, apparently, Um, but a much worse Lemsip... The Laboratory for Experimental Medicine and Surgery in Primates. Anyway, Nim was sent there to do tests for a new hepatitis C drug, and Ingersoll began a campaign to free Nim. In addition to the tests which involved infecting many of the chimps with hepatitis, the daily conditions were awful. Each chimp was kept alone in a steel cage that hung above the ground so that waste would drop to the floor. The chimps could not see each other and were not allowed to go outside. These measures were all supposedly to stop the chimps being exposed to germs, but the impact on their mental health was intense. The fact that several of the chimps at Lemsip could sign is heartbreaking, but it should be remembered that all the chimps had the same capacity for language and consciousness. Do you think that the the fact that they could sign is heartbreaking? Is that what's heartbreaking? Do you know what I mean? I mean, the conditions are heartbreaking, but the fact that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact that we taught chimps language only to uh, then, like, torture them is... That's the point, then. Foots again. As we left Lemsip, I was overwhelmed by shame. I was ashamed of Bowie's hepatitis, ashamed of the professionalism of Moore Jankowski, Lemsip's founder and director, and myself, ashamed of the respectability that hung over all this suffering. Luckily for Nim Chimsky, in 1996, after 14 years, Ingersoll's public relations campaign got him released to the Black Beauty Ranch, an animal sanctuary in Texas, where Ingersoll continued to work with him until Nim died of a heart attack in 2000. Not related to weed. Well, you don't know that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's other shit about Nim, but, I mean, Nim killed a dog... I don't know, while at Black Beauty Ranch, Nim was a tortured soul. Like, he was a very, he was, I mean, the footage of Nim at Black Beauty Ranch, he doesn't have any chimps around him. So he just, you know, he just had hippies and no one wants that. No, really does want that. Shabdatsu. Lana. Kansi, Duane, Umbau, and Su Savash Umbau. Together with his team at Georgia State University, Duane Rumba, an experimental psychologist known for his many contributions toward understanding primate learning and behavior, designed a keyboard-based visuographic system of symbols called lexigrams that represented people places, foods, objects, activities, and other meanings, as well as Yerkish, a grammar for the system. 
They did all this specifically to avoid the clever hands effect, because without a human interpreter, no conscious or unconscious signals could be given to the test subject. The keys showed abstract symbols without iconic relation to the ideas they represented. So they're not pictures. And the order of the symbols was also regularly shuffled so that the symbols had to be learned rather than their place on the keyboard remembered. As usual, rewards were given if the symbols were given in the correct order, an order dictated by Yorkish grammar. And the sentence in progress was displayed on slide projectors above the clunky, oversized 1970s computer system. The dream was that the test subject, Lana, who lent the whole project her name, would spontaneously begin to learn language, motivated by the system of rewards dispensed by the machine. However, Lana didn't show any interest in the machine at all. So instead, she was actively tutored by research assistant Timothy V. McGill. Dwayne Rumbar wrote a chapter in Animal Bodies, Human Minds, Ape, Dolphin and Parrot Language Skills, which is by William Hillix. And this is our touchstone text for this and the last episode. Here's a quote from Dwayne in that book. Initially, she learned to press in any order a string of keys that we glossed as please machine give M&M, period. Period here means full stop for you non-Americans. Once she had learned to do this, we required her to press each key in turn, beginning with please and ending with the period key. Next, the keys were scrambled in order, then placed in various locations on the keyboard to teach her to attend to the lexigrams on the surface of the keys, not just to their locations. Why the please? That was simply the key that signaled the computer that a request statement was being composed. Why the period key? That signaled the computer that the request had been completed and that now it was time to check the utterance for grammaticality. So we have five key presses that are glossed as a request for M&Ms. In linguistics, a gloss is a translation choice or summary of the meaning of a word or morpheme. A morpheme, you will remember from episode one, is a unit of meaning. Please and period were glosses for stop and start and glosses, especially in animal linguistic studies, can be controversial. For instance, what if Washoe's famous invention of the word waterbird for swan were just her signing water and bird separately? After all, she was in the presence of both, yet it was interpreted as waterbird, a noun. FYI, the term gloss is the source of the word glossary, a collection of glosses. Mm. William A. Hillinx, uh, this time again from Animal Bodies, Human Minds. When glossing the symbols used in animal language studies, the best we can hope for is to find or create a dictionary that translates ASL or Rumbau's Yerkish into English or some other vocal language. But even with such a dictionary, we encounter the usual problems of inexact correspondence. Plus, in many cases, 
the problem of crossing from a visually to a vocally based language. How dangerous it is to assume that an animal's use of the symbol is the same as our use of an English gloss of that symbol. So remembering here that ASL and other sign languages are different languages from the spoken languages in the areas that they coexist in. So American Sign Language is a different language from American English. In his essay, Human Language and Other Semiotic Systems, Chomsky seems to be directly critiquing the Lana project with the following quote. Though he starts off by referring to experiments on pigeons, that had been trained to push a set of buttons in a particular order in return for a reward. Chomsky. Suppose that we label these buttons successively, please give me food. Do we now want to say that pigeons have been shown to have the capacity for a language in a rudimentary way? Then he talks about the gardeners who were the experimenters on Project Washoe. The gardeners, in an article reviewing such work, argue that virtually all of it, apart from their own, is undermined by a false analogy, in that researchers have labelled the symbols taught to apes with values derived from human languages, as in the pigeon example, then mistakenly concluding that the symbol correlated by the human researcher with a term of human language is being used by the ape with the properties of its human language correlate. Again, we're talking about the problem of glossing. Remember that both Terrace and Skinner did extensive experiments with pigeons. To counter Chomsky, however, we could question whether pigeons were able to use a non-representational symbol whose location was periodically moved. Suppose, however, Lana simply learned to place a sequence of symbols in a row. Would this be language? Chomsky's contention is that syntax is the defining feature of language because it allows the generation of novel sentences, sentences that one has not been specifically trained to construct. Like, for instance, the famous man looks at the red cup. So if an animal could be taught to generate such sentences, it would be a smoking gun for language researchers. More from Duane Rumbell. We were understandably elated when it was Lana who initiated the first conversation. On March the 6th, 1974, Lana saw Tim drinking a Coke outside her Lucite plastic room. In response to this view of Tim's activity, Lana composed a new sentence. Lana drank this out of long period. Would this sentence, as a new and grammatically correct, for Yerkish anyway, sentence, satisfy Chomsky? Would this satisfy Terrace? Once again, we see that Lana is being driven by a reward. And notice also that the objective computer-controlled system has given way to a human interpreter or hybrid interpreter, as there might be other ways of glossing this sentence. Lana did go on to clarify that she meant Coke when Tim asked her, drink what? So perhaps she did understand what she was saying. 
On the use of machines and experimental settings in the search for what is and isn't language, Rumba and Sue Savage Rumba, who we'll meet later, also noted the role of context as being critical. They believed that the cold quantification of information theory is not going to help much, that we need to know what the organism wants to communicate and study its behavior. In addition to studying context, researchers need to study more carefully the relationships between the verbal and nonverbal elements of communication. The experiments with Lana were far more extensive than any before and included experiments involving numbers and color perception. It established the lexigram system, which continued with other apes, and its funding had been given in order to find new ways of communicating with children who have difficulty learning language. And there is some indication that this was successfully applied. Previous work with sign language had showed that non-deaf children exposed to sign language could use it and would often become more responsive to spoken languages. As for Lana, the Georgia State University magazine summed up her life and work like this. Lana died in November 2016 at the age of 46. Her cognitive feats did not end with the lexigrams. Washburn estimates that Lana was studied by more than 100 scientists and produced data for more than 200 journal articles and book chapters. After arriving at the LRC, she learned to count, and when shown a numeral, she could use a joystick to remove the corresponding number of boxes from a screen. And in 2000, Michael Beran found that she could still recall the original lexigrams, nearly 20 years after she had last seen them. Kanzi. Kanzi is a bonobo born in captivity in 1980 at Yerkes Field Station, which was named after comparative psychologist, primatologist and... Uh, racial eugenicist mm. Robert Yerkes. <laughs> mm. It's always the eugenicists. Mm. Yerkes Field Station is the oldest scientific institute dedicated to non-human primate medical research and Yerkish is also named after the primatologist. Shortly after his birth, Kanzi was stolen and adopted by a dominant female, Matata, who was caught in the wild in 1975. Matata and Kanzi were then moved to the Language Research Centre at Georgia State, where the Lana experiment occurred and where Matata was being taught. Matata's education did not go well. Her bio on the website of her current research facility, the Great Apes Trust, states... Over five years of effort have been invested in attempting to inculcate some degree of lexical skill in Matata. This effort has resulted in partial competency with six food names. However, it appears that her early experience in the field, meaning in the wild, has resulted in eye gaze patterns that are distinctly different from those of her offspring. She checks her surroundings so frequently that her eyes move away from any task at hand. 
These symptoms remind us of returned soldiers with PTSD, many of whose symptoms would be perfectly appropriate were they still in a war zone, but perhaps characterising the life of wild chimps this way is not entirely correct. So a couple of quotes from the people involved. The website of Georgia State says, our non-human primate residents participate in entirely voluntary and non-invasive cognitive and behavioral research. Yerkes states, our collective vision is people across generations and the world living longer, healthier lives. During all of Matata's lessons, Kanzi was present yet showed little interest until one day he surprised researchers by spontaneously starting to use the lexigrams correctly, thus becoming the first observed bonobo to appear to use some elements of language. Within a short time, Kanzi had mastered the 10 words that researchers had been struggling to teach his adopted mother, Matata. This ties in with what we know about language acquisition in human children, that there is an important window from before birth until around the age of five when children learn language. After this period, language acquisition becomes much more difficult and children who aren't exposed to language, like in so many of the feral children's stories of psychology and psychiatry, never completely learn language. And as an adult, Kanzi's abilities have continued to grow. When he hears a spoken word through headphones to filter out nonverbal cues, he can point to the correct lexigram. And he now has a vocabulary of over 600 words. Further, his keepers claim he can vocalize in a distorted form of English that the keepers understand. And he knows some American sign language. Kanzi is the most talented non-human user of human language ever and perhaps that will ever be. Su Svash Rumbau When Kanzi was eight, he participated in a study that compared his abilities to follow commands with that of a two-year-old child. Of the 660 commands he correctly performed, 74%, while the child performed 65%. And he was successfully taught to make stone tools by archaeologists who wanted to compare his skills to those of our known human ancestors. Until 2012, when she died of a cold, Kanzi lived with his adopted sister, Panbanisha. He is now the alpha male of a group consisting of his adopted brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, and some other unrelated bonobos. He is also somewhat of a celebrity. His main trainer, Sue Savage Rumba, continually provided him and his family with stimulating new situations, like painting or jamming with Paul McCartney or Peter Gabriel, and appearing on the Oprah Winfrey Show. But Kanzi, though extremely talented and also a bonobo, shared much of his behaviour with that of chimpanzees, as this next part, reported by NPR's Radiolab, illustrates. 
Bill Fields was the scientific director at the Great Ape Trust. And one day, the project's principal investigator was having a heated disagreement with Sue Savage-Rombard about methodology. Voices were raised and Kanzi became agitated. He approached Bill, saying that he had to punish the investigator for screaming at Sue. Bill tried to laugh it off, but Kanzi told him, you punish her or I'll bite you. As Bill describes it, he defaulted to human culture and told Kanzi he couldn't do that. That's not how humans do things. 24 hours later, Kanzi got out of his enclosure, ran down the hall, sought out Bill in his office and bit his hand. He bit him so severely that Bill lost a finger and had to have multiple operations to reattach ligaments for the two others. 14 days after the event, Bill returned to work, but relations were strained to say the least. Kanzi would ask for Bill, but Bill refused to see Kanzi until he apologized and Kanzi would continually refuse to apologize. As Bill Fields explained, and what he wanted me to do is just come down and renew my friendship with him and just act like nothing had happened. And uh, I simply wouldn't go and see him. And Sue came to me and tried to talk me into going to see him. And I said, when Kanzi's ready to apologize, but she'd come back and say, no, Kanzi's not gonna apologize. He doesn't think he should. And uh, I, I just stood on my ground, you know, Kanzi's gonna apologize to me. This lasted eight months until they were reunited and Kanzi finally apologized, pressing the sorry key on his lexigram board. I don't know, man. Seems a little <laughs> push button apology. Um, yeah, always, I know. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it's mm-hmm. like an emoji, you know. Was it worth it? Was it worth it, Bill? Did it make you feel better? Yeah, I don't know what what they're, they're very. The researchers are very emotionally involved in these things, you know. I mean, it's kind of abusive, right? Yeah, and if exactly, but if it's a push button, that's all it takes. Then you know, fair enough. That's that's the method you have. Yeah, that's the language. My speaking about emojis, my um, mother misunderstands several emojis. Oh, it's so especially adorable. The one for splashing droplets, and she keeps saying to my sister, because my sister has corona, saying, make sure you keep your fluids up, splash, splash. Oh, <laughs> boy. my sister's like, oh, boy. I'm sick and now I'm being abused. Don't forget to wash your <laughs> eggplant. That's what I think these symbols yeah. mean. What we see in this story and the other stories of chimps and bonobos violently asserting their dominance is that humans and the other great apes have radically different cultures. I interpret Kanzi's refusal to apologize as being righteous. So in his system of beliefs and perhaps in the culture of bonobos, he simply had done nothing wrong. And before we judge him too harshly, let's remember that every society on earth every human society, that is, sanctions violence in some context or another, whether as war, capital or corporate punishment, or self-defense, or in continuing to profit from the ongoing spoils of colonial violence. 
Though bonobos are not chimps and are known to be considerably less violent, they're more genetically similar to each other than they are to us. Chimp hierarchies exist in the context of extreme competition for territory with other groups of chimpanzees. And perhaps these societal structures correlate with such competition, allowing the group to survive. Jane Goodall documented the Gombe War, a multi-year conflict between two groups of chimps, which resulted in the complete destruction of one group by another. Perhaps Kanzi was enacting a form of military discipline when he bit Bill. Though there are significant behavioural differences between chimps and bonobos, perhaps the story illustrates the use of violence in maintaining ape hierarchies or even mixed human and ape hierarchies. But there is an underlying issue that is missing from this, and that is the health and safety of the human staff that work with great apes. Chimp sanctuaries have been the site of multiple safety infringements. And in 2013, Sue Savage Romba left the Great Ape Trust after a temporary suspension from its executive directorship due to complaints about her conduct with bonobos from employees. Watching YouTube videos of Kanzi sitting on Sue's couch at home with a dog in the 90s and knowing the potential threat to life and limb a bonobo or chimp represents makes the changing context very clear. Since her departure, the organisation has changed a lot. For one thing, there is no longer any physical contact between humans and bonobos. It's just considered too dangerous. There are also no behavioural studies going on anymore, and the focus is instead on enrichment the creation of stimulating activities that strengthen the well-being of the bonobos and the health of the chimpanzees. One of the enrichment activities, for instance, trains chimps to present body parts for examination by doctors and to weigh themselves. Others are simulated... Oh. <laughs> and to weigh themselves. Where does it hurt? Here? It's here. Yeah, My yeah, arm. Yeah. yeah. I My mean... Leg. There, I mean, it would be great to train them as doctors. That would be amazing. <laughs> Where does it hurt? Yeah, everywhere. One of the enrichment activities, for instance, trains chimps to present body parts for examination by doctors and to weigh themselves. Others are simulated foraging activities, food treasure hunts and stuff like that. Kanzi is now 50 and he's balding. Yep, I looked it up. Bonobos suffer from male pattern baldness too. Like any 50-year-old, he's been overweight, but he's lost 35 kilos in recent times. And he's approaching the life expectancy for a bonobo in captivity. And he's still the most accomplished non-human language user. Perhaps, as such experiments have now ended, the most accomplished non-human language user that will ever be. Mm. Hmm. Then Mucky oh. says conclusion. Danny says, oh. oh. Well, I'm glad that he gets to own that crown, you know. You know, one day they'll just make a, a Google Translate app for chimps. Yeah, true. I wonder what they will say. They probably want some of that sweet weed. Conclusion. 
Clever Hans and Expectancy. And so our stories conclude with the end of linguistic and medical experiments on chimps and bonobos. Though they produced only limited results in terms of language, these experiments did produce apes who were enculturated, at least partially, as human. The experiments were not only about teaching human language, but also tool use and other aspects of human culture. And once enculturated, the apes occupied a strange category halfway between worlds. As the tragedy of Lucy shows, they could no longer function as chimps in the wild. But then, as the case of Kanzi shows, nor could chimps be allowed to be part of human groups because they're simply too dangerous. The choice of chimps, which was largely because of their genetic similarity to humans, meant the sharing of a culture could never be a long-term proposal simply for the physical threat chimps and bonobos present. And the enculturation could only go so far as chimps could not share our vocal culture. Their physical and neurologically different vocal apparatus means that they can't share it. Simply, chimps' manual dexterity is much less than ours, so signing is also relatively difficult. Great apes raised in behavioural settings are trapped between two worlds, partially belonging to the human world, but too dangerous to fully inhabit it. In the end, I feel like very little was achieved except to illustrate how different our species are from each other and how cruel both species can be. To us, it's pretty clear that the Clever Hans effect is something that's almost impossible to discount. In almost every instance, the perception of language seems as much part of the process as language production. After all, language needs an active and understanding receiver. And as we broached in episode one, language doesn't really have a strict definition, but more of a collection of qualities, that it can be abstract, combinatorial, or displaced. So unlike Terrace, we can't say animals can or can't be taught to use language. But it's clear to us that behind a lot of these early experiments was the idea, or you could even say the hope, that exposure to language would produce animals we could communicate with much more fully than was actually achieved. Animal behaviorist Margaret Floy Washburn was the first woman to be granted a PhD in psychology. Washburn, in her best-known work, an arguably most significant contribution to psychology, The Animal Mind, a textbook of comparative psychology, first published in 1908, says, To this fundamental difficulty of the dissimilarity between animal minds and ours is added, of course, the obstacle that animals have no language in which to describe their experience to us. Where this unlikeness is greatest, as in the case of invertebrate animals, language would be of little use, since we could not interpret it from our experience. But the higher vertebrates could give us much insight into their minds if they could only speak. All that the experiments with chimps and language ultimately describe is the very human desire 
for animals to speak. The famous man looked at the red cup. 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 Rogue syntax. 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 Rogue